encourage you now to turn to Luke chapter 22, verses uh, 47. We're actually going to work through verse 50, or 62, sorry. Um, as you kind of get settled in there, let me just set, set the stage or kind of draw you into the context. Uh, it's been a long night already. I mean, we've been studying this night of Jesus' life now for several weeks. The, the, the drama is building. The, the conflict is increasing. So that, that this is true, has been true actually for some time. The drama, the, the conflict that Jesus is facing in Jerusalem had been building um, for, for some time. It really intensified when he came into Jerusalem and began to confront the Jewish leaders and the Jewish religion at its, at its home base, if you will, uh, in the temple. But this last night, was, it was especially intense, especially important in Jesus' ministry. He had spent time already this evening, that, this night that we're studying. He's already spent time uh, with his disciples, teaching them about his death and, and preparing them to watch him die and suffer. Uh, but in the midst of that, he also teaches them to, to expect their own suffering. He prepares them to endure suffering uh, on their own or, or as a result of their relationship with him. He, they go out from the city after celebrating the first communion, after his teaching them about the suffering that's coming and, and, and the death that's coming. They go out of the city to the place that they've gone every night. Now, this is not new for Jesus. He's gone to the same place every night. It's intentional. It's purposeful. You're going to see that play out tonight. He goes to the same place he'd gone every night since they'd arrived in Jerusalem. And there, when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives, he instructs them to, instructs them to pray. Pray that you won't enter into temptation. Pray that you won't enter into trouble. And that you'll be able to avoid certain trouble. That you'll have power to endure the suffering that's coming. Then he himself goes just a little bit further. It says in the text that he goes about a stone's throw from them. And, and I don't know how far a stone's throw is. Maybe you could throw further than I can. Maybe I can throw further than you can. But it's a little ways anyway from them. And he prays for he prays himself. And in the midst of this prayer, this, the, the, the reality, the intensity, the, the, the weight and the, the, re, the, the, the seriousness of the moment becomes very clear in the midst of his prayer. He begins to pray that the, the cup that he's about to have to drink would pass from him. The, the situation and the circumstances that he's about to endure, if it could pass from me, may it be so, but not my will, yours be done. That's how he prays to the Father. And the agony of it, the, the intensity of it increases as the Father sends an angel to serve him. And it tells us that he, he didn't cease praying when the angel showed up. He, his prayer intensified. It became more earnest. And he began to sweat. And his sweat became like great drops of blood. The, the, the picture of this moment it is one where the conflict is, is increasing. It's, it's reaching its crescendo. The reality of what's coming is weighing on him. The seriousness of it, the intensity of it is... is it's beyond, I think, what we can really imagine. We get to see playing out in time what had been determined from all eternity. The father would will his son to redeem and for, die. He, he would will his son to die in order to redeem and forgive sinners like us. Jesus was not going to be bested by the conspiracy that was working against him. He was not going to be outsmarted by a betrayer like Judas. He was going to go willingly into this suffering so that he could honor his father's will. 
We get to see an eternal moment played out in time where the father determines the son must die. And the son determines and chooses to die in our place for our sin. This is is both of them working together, working in unison, the, the, the one will of God being played out in time for us to see. The Jews didn't win. The Romans didn't win. The conspiracy didn't succeed. Jesus is giving himself to this. And he rises from that prayer, knowing what the Father's will is. And he walks out and he finds his apostles, not praying, sleeping. And he calls them to prayer again. Why are you sleeping? They obviously didn't understand what was going on. They, they didn't understand the intensity of the moment, the, 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 the weight of this moment. They didn't understand the critical juncture in Jesus' ministry. And they were sleeping. He calls them again to pray. Pray so that you will not enter into temptation. And while he is speaking, they are interrupted. And that's where we step back into the story. Beginning in verse 47 of chapter 22, it says this. While he was still speaking, while he was still calling them to prayer, there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those that were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Now, if you'll remember, you go back to a couple of passages, uh, go back to Luke chapter 21, and, and, and they had, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not at the t- at chapter 21, at the, at the, before they left the upper room, they had told Jesus, hey, we got, we've got two swords. And, and, and he's like, that's enough. Quit talking about that. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now let's stop right there. So Jesus and and the remaining 11, they haven't been gone out of the upper room before they begin to endure the very suffering that Jesus had been telling them was coming. The betrayer that was with him at the table is here in their presence leading this angry mob out to arrest Jesus. The world that was existent in their numbers, the spy that was among them was leading this group from outside their numbers, from from the wider world. They were suffering at the hands of evil men and and evil people in the world. This already has begun. We know that Judas was doing this under the influence of Satan. It tells us that back at the beginning of chapter 22. And here they are, not, not gone from the upper room very long at all, and they're already enduring the suffering and the trouble that Jesus had told them was coming. Now, Jesus has spent his time praying, right? He's, he's been in the garden waiting for this to happen, and he is prepared because he's praying. His apostles, not so much. They've been sleeping. And so when they recognize what's going on, hey, hey is, is now the time we're like, we need our swords, we got to go to battle. The, there's a reality. They're going against an angry mob with two little swords, They are not ready to face this. They are not prepared to do this. They they don't know what's... Because they've been sleeping. And one of them so so boldly moves and doesn't wait for an answer from Jesus, but just lunges, charges, and cuts off someone's ear. It's the high priest's servant. And we know from other gospel records, his name is Malchus. We know from John's gospel record that it's Peter that does the cutting. Well, Jesus is gracious enough to stop him from cutting off any more ears. And then he heals Malchus and says, there's no more of this. This isn't the way it's intended 
to be. And then he says something very critical. Look at verses 52 and 53. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? I mean, just think about this. Here they are, these 11 apostles facing off a crowd, facing off this mob, this angry mob with clubs and swords of their own. Have you come out against against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. The irony of this is shocking. They could have taken him at any moment. But if you remember, if you go back, if you remember what he had said or what, what, what Luke had told us, they were afraid of the people. The one thing that they, were, that, that they desired more or the one thing that, that motivated them more than wanting Jesus dead was being afraid of the people. They were more cowardly than they were desiring of Jesus' death. I was here in your presence every day in the temple. You did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. This is critical. What what he just said there is absolutely critical. This is not this moment in the garden standing there surrounded by this angry mob there to arrest him carrying clubs and swords. Surrounded by disciples who aren't prepared to walk in this moment because they've been sleeping and not praying. Face to face with the betrayer that was sat at the table with him and celebrated Passover that led to the first communion. Standing in this moment, it's not an isolated event. It isn't, it isn't that, that in some way that, that he arrived at this point because, because he had miscalculated or because he had not planned properly. It's not like, like, I mean, if you've ever received an email or some, a post, you've seen a post from me on Realm that has had a date associated with it, you've seen me put a wrong date, right? Like, that, that's, I do that. Jesus didn't mix up his dates. He knew this was coming on this night, at this time. He knew that this was about to happen. He has allowed this to to happen to accomplish his purposes that further reveal his glory. You see, evil gets its hour because the Father wills it. And Jesus submits to it. So his glorious and good purpose can be accomplished. Evil gets its hour. This is so radically different than what any of us expect of God. It's so radically different than what is intuitively natural to us. When we hear about suffering or, or the works of evil, and, and we tend to doubt God, not, more, not, not grow more confident in his plan. When, when tragedy occurs, just, just think about the last tragedy you faced. And it, I mean, it could be as simple as a flat tire on the side of the road or something as serious as the loss of a loved one. When tragedy occurs, aren't we more likely to wonder if God has forgotten us or wonder where he is in it? I mean, isn't the question after some serious tragedy has happened in our culture, 
I mean, it just happens, you know. I mean, there, there's a reality. You, you don't have to go far. You don't have to think too far out from, from, from current circumstances to even consider the last tragedy that, that we as a people have endured or that we as a people have at least felt. I have I, I, been off Facebook for most of Lent. I get on to post the link to the sermon notes that are on Version Live. Uh, I... I, uh, have, I, I got on the other day because it was my birthday and a bunch of people wished me happy birthday and I, I wanted to interact with them in that. I didn't, I mean, it just felt like it would be rude not to. Uh, the, the, and so I've been on it very little, but in, in one of those times that I got on, I saw a post from a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, that was, was talking about a, a young black man that was unarmed in his backyard, got shot like 20 times. Now, I didn't read all the reports. I don't know all that went down. I, I just know I saw that headline, and I'm, I'm shocked. And, and, and this friend of mine, he's a, he's a black pastor, and he feels the weight of that. More than I feel the weight of that. Because it's been so prevalent that, that, that this kind of thing is happening. Well, you go just back a couple of, a week before that, maybe a couple of weeks before that, we're, we're seeing students uh, uh, protest the, the use of, uh, or the ways that we have our gun laws in the nation because just a couple of weeks ago, someone went into a school and shot and killed a bunch of kids. And the question always seems to be, where is God? This problem of suffering and evil, is often, it's often referred to the problem of evil, like the problem of evil and suffering. This is, this is a perspective that many people, they deem this enough reason to not just doubt God, but to deny him altogether. They assume that because evil and suffering exist, the God of the Bible can't. The assumption is that if the God of the Bible, this all-knowing, all-powerful benevolent good God, this, this good God existed, that he would A, remove all evil from the world, or B, never permit evil to occur. But what do you do with a moment like this that we're studying in the scripture? At this pivotal moment in the ministry of Jesus' life, with his disciples looking on, the betrayer standing before him, the angry mob all around him. This is the result of God's will. This is exactly the, the set of circumstances that takes place because Jesus had just prayed, not my will but yours be done. This is the reality of the set of circumstances that have to unfold in order for Jesus to go to the cross and, and from, from the cross rise in victory. The cup that Jesus was asking to let pass could not pass. It had to be. Does this in any way then diminish the reality of Jesus' identity or, or God's existence? No. No. Where is God in this? Well, he's right here in the middle of it. He is being arrested. God is submitting himself to the power and the authority of evil. He is allowing himself. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I can only picture it as a, as a present day picture. I mean, I, 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 I imagine him being cuffed and shackled behind his back and, and let off because they're afraid of him. This is the very result of the way that the Father had answered his prayer. 
Where is God in this? He's watching his son be arrested. Knowing that the things that are coming, he is going to suffer. He is going to endure pain. He is going to to step into the reality of the weight of sin. Where is God in this? In the midst of our suffering, he has suffered. And see, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a problem with the idea of this, of this, this problem of evil. There's a, there, there, there's a, there's a, a logic that doesn't add up. It, it, it's, a, it's a starting point that isn't the right starting point. And so it leads to the, the, the bad starting point leads to a bad ending point. See, we, we tend to think of evil in terms of people like Hitler Murderers, rapists, pedophiles, people that walk into schools and shoot kids, bad cops that shoot unarmed black men. But the truth is, the Bible teaches us that you and I are evil, not because we're Hitler. Not because we're rapists and murderers, but because we're of the line of Adam. We are the evil that we so long the Lord to rid the world of. He's got a different plan. He's got a bigger plan. He's got a grander plan. Instead of ridding the world of evil, which would include you and I, instead of just wiping the face of evil, which would include you and I, God has a more glorious plan to deal with evil. He is going to rid the world of evil while at the same time redeeming, redeeming evil people and forgiving them of their sins. If this God, if this holy, righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing, benevolent God is going to rid the world of evil and save some of us, then this moment in the garden has to happen. Jesus submits to evil so that he can overthrow it while at the same time saving us from it. There's a, a quote from Philip Reich, and man, there's some powerful moments as I read commentary on this, just the reality of the, the bigness of the sovereignty of God in this. He says, The very fact that Jesus told the forces of darkness which hour was theirs showed he was Lord of that hour and every hour. Just consider that one sentence for a second. He told darkness when it had an hour. He told evil when it could rule. Even the dark hour of betrayal was under the great power of God and of his Christ. All of the things that seemed at, that, at the time like victories for Satan, including Judas and his nefarious kiss, actually fulfilled the prophecies of God. Jesus allowed Satan to have this hour of power only because he knew it would help to accomplish our salvation. Evil gets its hour because the Father wills it and Jesus submits to it so his glorious and good purpose can be accomplished. Now, 
Luke doesn't give us all the details. So there's a really cool detail. I feel like you've got you to see in this moment, as he's being arrested, J- John tells us about, uh, about when, when, when the mob arrives, he, he, Judas comes and kisses Jesus. John doesn't share that part, but Judas comes and kisses Jesus, and then Jesus begins to address the crowd, and he says, who are you looking for? <laughs> and the crowd says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And when he said, I am he, it knocked them all down. He didn't touch them. He didn't run at them. He didn't charge at them. He didn't like pop like a jack-in-the-box and scare them. His word knocked them down on their butts. Jesus did not go because he was overpowered. Jesus went because he restrained his power for a greater purpose. The point I want you to see is that the only reason that, that these people were able to arrest Jesus and take Jesus was because he allowed it. This was how it had to be. This is the answer to his father's prayer. Now, you and I get answers like this all the time. We don't like them, and so we call them unanswered prayers. (laughs) This is not an unanswered prayer. In fact, there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. He answers every one of his children's prayers. He just answers them according to his will and not ours. This is how it had to be. Let me just draw your attention, Luke 22, before they left the upper room, verse 37, Jesus has already said, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the sinners, with the criminals, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. You see, that, that's Isaiah 53. That is the clearest reference of Isaiah 53 to Jesus in anywhere in the Gospels. Jesus knows that before he sits on the throne and makes all things new in Revelation 21, he must endure the, the suffering as the Savior in Isaiah 53. That's what this is a reference to. But just imagine. Just imagine this. Not having the divine perspective that Jesus has. Like he, he's God. He knows more than you and me. Uh, imagine not having the, 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 the story of history unfold so that we can look back on and see it. Like we're sitting here at an advantage. Right? We know what's going to happen because it's already occurred. But imagine... If you're one of Jesus' apostles standing in that circle, you're probably just as quick to pull a sword and do something stupid as cut off an ear. In fact, you might even think in that last tragic moment that you endured, you might have done something just as silly, just as desperate seeking to protect yourself and provide for your own salvation as pulling a sword against an angry mob. They had spent three years following him around. They had spent three years following Jesus. They had seen powerful, amazing, awe-inspiring miracles. The blind had heard, the deaf... No, the blind had seen, the deaf had heard... I have to straighten that out for the second sermon. 
The blind had seen, the deaf had heard, the lame had walked, the sick had been made well. The dead had risen. By this point, there's at least three people he'd raised from the dead. And and they had begun to confess him. They had begun to recognize him as the, the Christ the Son of God. And when, he, when, when they proclaim that, when Peter, as the spokesman, says that, he doesn't re- rebuke him. He says, that was given to you from heaven above. This was the Messiah in all their knowledge, in all that they had come to know and believe and, and given their lives to. He's the Messiah, and here it is. It's falling apart. It is absolutely falling apart. He's supposed to be ascending to a throne, not being arrested and taken to prison. Not facing a trial that could lead to his death? Is it any wonder that they tried to defend Jesus? Is it any wonder that when they took Jesus that none were standing right by him? Really, should we be surprised at all by what comes next? Most of you probably already know the story of Peter. One of the boldest and most brash of Jesus' followers. He's not the betrayer. That's Judas. But he is the denier. Pick it up in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to, into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, now, now picture this. Peter has already told Jesus that I will follow you to prison and death. And so they take him. Peter not up in the middle of the crowd. <laughs> he's, he's at a distance. He's like, I'm going to make sure they... I want to know where they're going. He sits down among them. And and just imagine the people that are in the high priest's courtyard, right? So this is probably, well, it's people of the high priest's household, but it's probably also people who have been in the garden to arrest Jesus. This is the same people with clubs and swords that they just were seeing. I mean, that's why they're there in the middle of the night, more than likely. He sits down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now, we didn't read it today. We read it a couple of weeks ago. But as soon as that rooster crowed, Peter remembered. Peter remembered something. Jesus had just told him earlier that night in the upper room, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But Luke shares a detail with us that's more than just a rooster crowing. And the Lord looked at Peter. Eye contact. They saw each other. The Lord looked at Peter. 
Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter had been sleeping, not praying. Pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Oh, Peter was tired. They were all tired. He wasn't prepared to endure this moment. He wasn't prepared for what was coming. He was not prepared to sit in that place. He had totally forgotten what Jesus had said earlier in the week when he talked about that, that when you face people who are condemning you or ridiculing you because of me, that's the opportunity to bear witness about me. He had totally forgotten what Jesus had already been preparing them for. Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing as a result of this. And he, he finds himself doubting all that he's seen over these three years. And, and it leads him to a place of not bearing witness. But a place of fear. A place of self-protection. And when he was confronted about his allegiance to Jesus, he denied Jesus. And he picked himself. Now from our position of of knowing how the rest of the story turns out, I, th I think it's probably easy for us to look at Peter and say, I can't believe he did that. I can believe he did that. J.C. Ryle, commenting on this, makes a, a, an excellent point. He says, the best and highest saint is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. And I recognize that in myself. Whether he knows it or not, he carries within him a boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin into which he may not run if he does not watch and pray. And if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the fall of Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. You see, I, I, I think, I want to be cautious and careful and compassionate as I say this, but I think we probably spend too much time sleeping and not enough time praying so that we aren't prepared to endure the difficulties that come with being associated with Jesus. But now, now, because all of this has happened, all, all of this has unfolded for us, not only do we enjoy the salvation that comes through Jesus' sacrifice, but we now are, are able to get a view of it and be prepared and understand the importance and the seriousness and the intensity of the moment in which we live. You see, now we can understand what evil does and that it does have a day. We can learn about how evil works. And we can pray and be prepared to face and endure it. See, evil may rule for a day, but Jesus rules for eternity. Jesus says to the mob, he says, this is your hour. He doesn't give them long. He, doesn't, he limits their time. He limits their influence. He brings them to this place where, where they cannot act beyond his hand and beyond his plan. 
He, it is only going to have victory over him for a short time, for a limited time. Again, J.C. Ryle commenting on this passage, he says, The sovereignty of God over everything done on earth is absolute and complete. There's no, there's no, there's no room for error here. There's no room for gray, gray areas or discussion. The sovereignty of God over everything done on earth is absolute and complete. The hands of the wicked are bound until he allows them to work. They can do nothing without his permission, but this is not all. The hands of the wicked cannot stir one moment before God allows them to start and cannot continue one moment after God has commanded them to stop. That's hopeful. That is so filled with the words and reality, the truth of of our hope. Evil may rule for an hour, but Jesus rules for eternity. They, may, they can only start when he says start, and they must stop when he says stop. Our suffering, our endurance will only last so long as the Lord allows it. He finishes his quote by saying, Our Lord's enemies could not take him until the appointed time had come. Evil is not all-powerful. It will not win in the end. Since its entry into the world through the serpent and, and, and the serpent's deception of, of, uh, in Eden of Adam and Eve, God has been re- restraining it. Here's, here's, a, here's a crazy thing. If not for the common grace of God, I fear where we might be. If, God, if for God, not restraining evil, that his salvific purposes may not be worked in this world so that his salvific purposes would be worked in the world, if his restraining of evil wasn't at play, just imagine who you might be. Not... Not only would it be a worse place to live in, I don't think we'd have any idea that there'd be anything better. Without the common grace of God restraining evil and the, and the purposeful and intentional and efficacious grace of God directing evil for the good of his people and the glory of his name and the advancement of his gospel. there wouldn't be a reason to keep going. In the grand scheme of things, any victory that evil has is a wisp of smoke, though, in contrast to God's eternal reign. We can endure because our God is sovereign. Evil may may have a day, but Jesus has all of eternity. Evil presents a form of truth we call a lie, but Jesus is truth. Consider Judas' kiss. You go back to Judas' kiss. This is a greeting between friends. This is not a kiss on the, on the hand. Like he's not coming up and kissing Jesus' hands as a subordinate. He's not bowing at his feet and kissing and, and weeping over someone who is in awe and giving their whole life unto someone else. He is coming up and kissing Jesus on the cheek. That's the kiss of a peer. That's the kiss of someone who is on the same level. It's a kiss of intimacy and relationship. Now, I know it seems weird in our culture because we don't walk around kissing one another. This would be normal in their day. This was normative in their day. But it was a lie. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Would you you be so brash and bold in your lie that you would cover it up with a, a, a kiss? 
See, Judas, there's no true friendship here. There's no, no real intimacy. Judas had never been true. Judas had never shown himself really who he was among the apostles or even to Jesus. He had been trying to hide in his sin since the moment he was called. That's why when, when Jesus says a betrayer is at the table with me, they're not all pointing at Judas because he had lived such a lie. He had been so good at lying and covering himself up. Nobody was looking at Judas and saying, oh, he's the one. He was a hypocrite, no different than the Jewish leaders that he was uh, conspiring with. And he was, a, he was a liar, no different than the devil that was influencing him to do this. Consider how it felt to be one of Jesus' apostles. The truth of that moment felt like everything was falling apart. The truth that they felt like that they were seeing is that, that this is the end. All seems lost. We got no hope, so we pull our two little swords and think we're going to do something amazing. If we're going to go down, we're going to go down swinging. Consider what it was going through Peter's mind as, as he sat there in the courtyard listening to all the accusations against Jesus. Probably as... Probably we're not seeing a play-by-play, -play, like Peter denies Jesus three times and then the trial begins. Probably what we're seeing is Luke, for the sake of telling a story with clarity, tells us about Peter's three denials across the rest of the night as Jesus is being beaten and mocked and spit upon by the soldiers and as Jesus is facing the false accusations of, of the chief priest calling him a blasphemer. So just imagine how true those lies seemed as Jesus sat there and took it rather than fighting back. This is why Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21.8 as he was telling them about the coming kingdom, see that you are not led astray. There's a reality that every act of evil has lies and deceit woven through it. Every act of evil and sin that has ever been committed starts with believing a lie and denying the truth. That's exactly what happens when Peter denies Jesus. He believes the lies. Jesus can't save me now. Jesus can't help me now. I don't know that man. He's just thinking about, how do I get out of this house without being lumped in with him? How do I get out of this house without being arrested and possibly killed myself? Paul, writing on this to the Roman church, Romans 1.24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Under every act of evil and behind every sin ever committed is someone who has believed a lie. Who has denied the truth. But Jesus says, John 14, 6, again on the last night of his life, says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the truth that the Father has a plan. He is the truth. Trust Him. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
We gain life because of him, through him, because of his truth. Evil presents a form of truth called a lie, but Jesus is truth. Evil causes suffering. Evil causes suffering, but Jesus never allows his people to suffer in vain. This is a promise specifically to his disciples. This is a promise specifically to his people. This is not a promise for everyone out in the world. This is not a promise that everyone can can claim. This is a promise that every believer and follower of Jesus Christ can cling to. Evil causes suffering. We all know that. But Jesus never allows his people to suffer in vain. Jesus wasn't suffering in vain here. As he's humbling himself, submitting himself to, to to the events of the night, as he's allowing himself to be arrested by evil people, he had a glorious and good purpose in mind. He was moving toward that place. Before he could sit on the throne of Revelation 21, he was going to have to walk in the suffering Savior's shoes of Isaiah 53. He was allowing himself to be beaten and and, and submitted to by by evil so so that they could accomplish their goals, so that God could have his way. And what's true of Jesus here is true of his disciples. It's true of those he's called into life. Again, Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that we, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, I know that most of us aren't there, but we we can grow to this. Not only, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Where does this begin? Not being put to shame? Growing in hope? Growing in character? Growing in, in, in endurance? Starts in our suffering. You do not suffer tragedy and trial in vain. You do not suffer because evil has won. You suffer because God is making you into the person he created you to be. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers. Again, what is, it? What is with this idea, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? I, I, think, I think God has a point here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want some of that. Like, I want some perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. That sounds great. Don't you? I mean, isn't that what you sign up for when you follow Jesus? Isn't that what you long for? Yes, probably so. Oh, how do I get there? When you meet trials of various kinds, your faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness having its full effect. Mm. See, Jesus isn't just simply saving us from evil when he saves us. He's not just saving us from evil and suffering. He's saving us through evil and suffering. Those two passages, they, they draw this picture out of suffering that we're sanctified, but but I want you to see also there's a picture. We, we don't suffer in spite of Jesus. We suffer because of Jesus. And actually, he's the one that gives it to us. Philippians 1, 29 through 30, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. If I were to pick out a coffee cup verse, this is, I think is my coffee, coffee cup verse. For it's been granted to you, gifted to you, like this is your gift, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He gives you the gift of suffering in his name. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He gifts us with this suffering because of his sake. It actually identifies us with him. And not as one forgotten by him, but as being with him, being his follower, being his person in this world. And, and he leads us to it. He gives it to us. Listen, evil, evil may, 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 may cause suffering, but Jesus uses it for a good purpose. And finally, evil may inspire acts of hopeless desperation, but Jesus desires our persistent repentance. Who doesn't act in desperation in the face of evil? In the face of suffering, we've all done it. We lie to cover up our, our sin. We, we lie and we hide to make ourselves look better. In the face of evil, Peter wasn't much better than Judas. What's worse, betrayal or denial? Peter, cut off a guy's ear. I mean, really? And he probably wasn't trying to cut off his ear. Then in another act of desperation, seeking to protect himself, he, he lies. And he denies the truth about who Jesus is to him. And Jesus isn't looking for our acts of desperation. He's looking for and calling us to day in, day out, persistent repentance. Always denying the lies and believing the truth. Always walking away from our sin and toward him. Or to say it another way, to exchange the lies of evil men and, 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 and forces for the truth that God, for, for the God that is eternal. You see, in the end, the difference between Judas and Peter was marked by Repentance. Judas never repented, and Jesus said, woe to him. It'd be better if he had never been born. But when Jesus looked at Peter, I don't know if that's, I think I just said that about, that's Judas. I think I said that wrong. Judas never repented. But when, when, when Jesus looked at Peter, Peter remembers what he says, and he is broken. And we know that there, as the story goes, we got, we got history on our side. The story goes that, that Peter is going to be restored because he's repentant. And in his repentance, Jesus takes that. It takes his evil, takes the sin and the evil that's in his life and then begins to use it for his own good and for his own glorious purposes. You see, not even the evil in your life is beyond the power and the sovereign God that can use it to, to accomplish his glorious and good purpose. Evil gets its hour because the Father wills it and Jesus submits to it so his glorious and good purpose can be accomplished. Now, 